Hey everyone, uh, just working obviously as we do at the beginning of every space as I'm bringing up all of the speakers. Um, Brett, I see you there, man. Hope you're doing well. Simon, uh, nice addition. Thanks for requesting. Noel, you should have in your DMs an invite that will immediately allow you to speak. I've also invited you, but uh, if those don't work, please request. Uh, we're also waiting, obviously, for Bruce, Bruce Fenton and for Seth Hartline. Uh, Brian Quintens, the former CFTC uh, commissioner, actually. Uh, just got called into something else and was unable to make it. Simon, you just somehow became a listener. I don't really understand what's happening here. The usual glitches that we have with Twitter spaces. Um, so just give us a second here uh, and we will figure it out, get everybody up on stage and we will get the ball rolling. Brett, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. How's it going? Perfect, man. Uh, doing well. What a, what a crazy uh, month there for us, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's a publicly shareable story, but how crazy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, everyone. How are you doing? Sorry, hey, I had no, some well, issues. No, perfect. Uh, no, no problem at all. Basically, guys, Brett and I found out that our parents were very close friends and had no idea after doing multiple conversations and podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, my 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 mother was literally like going through photo books recently and showing me pictures of you. So crazy! I, I just can't believe it. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable coincidence. Yeah. Um, so uh, it looks like we've got uh, everybody but Seth up here for now. So uh, obviously the uh, crowd will grow as we go, but um. This is being recorded and it will be recorded for our audio channels as well. So for anybody listening, this will also be available on Spotify, Apple, which is uh, the where the Under the Wolf of All Streets podcast channel. Uh, still working on getting everybody up here. Um, go ahead, hit that arrow button up at the top. It'll allow you to share this with uh, everybody, get more people in here for this conversation, uh, which I'm really looking forward to, although I got to say it makes me want to puke at this point talking about regulation, um, but it seems impossible not to, no matter how hard uh, we, we try to escape it. Kind of, you know, like the Godfather, we get sucked back in. Um, also, just as a matter of housekeeping, pretty uh, big announcement for something that we have coming soon. It'll be a half hour earlier, 10.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, but we're going to be starting Spaces daily starting next Monday. So this will now not just be a weekly thing. It will be daily, and it's going to be uh, three of us uh, doing it together. It'll be myself, Mario Nafal, obviously, who arguably has the largest uh, Twitter spaces and, and is leading the citizen journalism charge. Uh, and, and the crypto banter team. So we're going to commit to doing these conversations every single day, Monday through Friday. Uh, and I'm really, really looking forward to that because I think there's just endless topics here for us to uh, to opine on. And I think you could argue that right now is the most important fight that we've ever had in the crypto space. Bruce, you've probably been here the longest, right? I mean, we always kind of uh, allude to the fact that we've been here before, but this time, dare I say, feels a bit different because we're in that then they fight you phase. Uh, do you agree? Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, it is it is tiring. I agree with you on that. You know, it, it is tiring to just be, you know, hashing these regulatory issues over 
for so, so, so long, it's frustrating for us in the, in the industry. You know, a lot of us have spent, you know, five years, 10 years trying to get things done. And we just this morning, I was on a team call and I'm like, oh yeah, there's yet another product that we'd love to offer, but we're just not able to do it in the U.S. And, you know, that's pretty much the way it's been every week for forever, for everybody in this space. It's crazy. Uh, we've obviously seen this wholesale move offshore, right? I mean, I'm not going to pretend Coinbase is moving their operations offshore, sure, but they're certainly uh, showing at least that they're willing to start doing some operations there. Gemini's talked about it. Galaxy Digital, you know, obviously they already have offices, but it seems like we're actually seeing this exodus now. And so my fear, sort of what you alluded to, Bruce, is not only that like people are going to move now, but we're going to be so far behind by the time that we can come back that it'll be almost meaningless right yeah i can't imagine anybody serious about business you not thinking about alternatives to the united states i mean i i'm a per, i'm a i'm a poster child for for american uh securities business i mean i've been registered it'll be 30 years in nine days my 30th anniversary is in 30 years registered with the SEC. I've run firms. I've been a you know, member of broker-dealer. I've been a registered principal for over 20 years with FINRA. You know, I've, I've had all kinds of licenses my whole life. I mean, more, I've had my, my license, licenses way more than half my life. And, uh, you know, I live here. I, you know, I have kind of like a permanent house. It's not the kind of house you'd want to sell. And, and uh, yet, despite all this, my whole career being here, I have to look outside the U.S. I have to, as much as I want to be here. And I, I went through the extraordinary work to get all these licenses again, you know, so we have a broker dealer to work in this. I just can't look at this as the only market. I mean, it's getting worse and worse and worse. There's very little that you're able to do. And the whole world is kind of moving forward and leaving the United States behind. And the United States' advantage of like, well, you have to be in New York to be in finance. That's just not true anymore. Nobody cares about New York or San Francisco. Or... I'm not I, sure nobody everybody cares about... lost. Yeah, sorry about that. Nobody cares about you got to call. <laughs> yeah, it's the regulators. Um, you know, nobody cares about Chicago or New York or, or San Francisco anymore. You know, the U.S. is just kind of dying. And then meanwhile, you have all these other jurisdictions in the world who are, that are being, you know, really uh, welcoming. I mean, I, mean, I, I, I spent a lot of time in the, in the, um, the Gulf and the UAE for over 20 years. And I'm still stunned, still stunned how you know, easy it is over there and how friendly they are, how easy it is. You can meet the very, very, very top people uh, at the regulators very, very easily. You don't even need to have a business. You can just have an idea and be like, oh, I want to talk to the, it would be like somebody coming to the United States and be like, yeah, I'm thinking about doing an idea in securities. I want to meet Gensler. I mean, even Brian Armstrong can't, can't meet Gensler. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a whole different kind of uh, thing elsewhere because a lot of other jurisdictions are viewing this as a competition and they're trying to, attract people the united states has not looked at it that way for decades and there seems to be in some ways trying to do everything they can to push people away that's a shame yeah i very much saw that in real time when i was in dubai with you <laughs> um the, i mean literally the regulators was just rolling in taking meetings talking to everybody and it really was incredible to see the speed at which they move and even you know europe i think a lot of people maybe aren't thrilled with what micah looks like but you know, it was uh, approved today. And so now there is a framework there. Listen, Seth, for, for everyone who doesn't know Seth, I don't want to uh, butcher your title, Seth, but obviously he basically uh, is in charge of all of these things, dealing with regulators, public policy at Ledger, right? So you have a different uh, sort of 
skew here. You're in crypto, but you're selling a hardware device. I actually talked to Pascal, your CEO, last week, and he was in Washington taking meetings with senators and regulators all day. <laughs> so you guys are obviously on the front of this battle at the moment. What does it look like for, for, for you guys? Yeah, thanks, Scott. And um, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm glad you were able to get Pascal uh, on. Um, you know, we were, uh, we were fresh off the hill, um, and, you know, had a, you know, three days really of, of, you know, really great meetings with, uh, with, with senators and representatives, Republicans, Democrats, uh, you know, really sort of covering, covering the waterfront in the U.S. And, you know, honestly, Seth, honestly, I think your connection's a bit bad there. Go ahead. It was, um, it was rushing. Sorry, I'll, uh, I'll be back on, on what I really so apologies. Um, two really great meetings, uh, House Senate, Republican, Democrat, uh, and, and, you know, I think Pascal was really impressed at the knowledge base, uh, of, you know, of a lot of these members and their staff toward toward crypto, toward the technology itself, not not just the the policy issues that sort of dominate. And and that's a bit of a contrast to what we see in in Europe. Um, you know, and so there's this you know there's a narrative has developed uh, in the U.S. particularly, given sort of the hostile turn that the administration has taken uh, toward crypto. Um, you know, and I think a lot of people in the industry in the U.S. feel sort of persecuted, and I, I totally understand, um, you know, why they feel that way. And so there's this tendency to sort of look elsewhere and, um, you know, sort of look across the, the, the Atlantic and see uh, what the EU... I'm sorry, Seth, we, we keep losing you, um, so uh, we'll, we'll come back around when you're on uh, Wi-Fi, I, I think probably makes a lot more sense. I mean, Noel, Simon, you guys are both, first of all, uh, all the guests, you can jump right in, you don't need to wait to be prompted by me, but um, Noel, Simon, you guys are both abroad, so I, I mean, fr from looking from across the pond, I mean, what are you seeing and do you think that this can survive in the U.S. right now with this much of a crackdown and all of this increased rhetoric. Hi, everyone. You're tying in what both Seth and Bruce were highlighting. I'm, in, I'm based in Europe. I'm on the continent. And the atmosphere here is very, very different. We have Mika, as you said, Scott. I never thought I'd actually approve of an EU regulation. Normally, the EU goes way above board. They regulate far more than they need to, and they are very concerned about the secondary effects. But Mika has been well received. It's not perfect. It is limiting, but it is a framework that institutions and retail investors and service providers are comfortable with, and that enables people to build. Just look at the VC investment in European-based crypto funds over the past quarter. It is now dwarfing investment in US funds. The, tying this in together, we tend to forget, I mean, we often accuse many TradFi people of being too short-term and not focusing on the bigger picture. In crypto world, we tend to do the same sometimes. The regulatory crackdown in the United States is very painful and very bad news for the industry as a whole. No sugarcoating that. But it is temporary. It's temporary, one, because Gensler is not going to be in office forever. It could be 
two years, maybe not much longer, depending on what happens in the next elections. And let's face it, when a recession, the incumbent party usually loses. And also because of the international competition from Europe, yes, but also more worryingly from Asia, specifically the Hong Kong crypto framework and the implicit support that's getting from China. Crypto is becoming a political tool now, a geopolitical tool even, and the power shifts are going to make many regulators on both sides of the aisle sit up and, and pay more attention if indeed this is going to be the future of finance. I, if I could just pick up there, Scott, I'll, I'll back on why finance. Perfect. A, a more stable good. Issue. Um, yeah, and, and so, you know, so what I was saying is, you know, there's, you know, it, it is quite painful in, in the U.S. right now. Um, and so there's this tendency for, you know, people in the U.S. crypto community to look, uh, you know, across the ocean at, you know, at the EU and see, you know, and see Mika and say, look, there, you know, the, there's the regulatory certainty that, that we've been craving. Um, you know, but as, you know, as, uh, you know, a representative of, of a French company that has, has been involved in, um, you know, even the, the predecessor law to, to Mika, which is a French law called, uh, PACT, P-A-C-T-E. Um, you know, it, it, the grass is not, is not really greener. I mean, yes, you know, Mika does provide a, a level of regulatory certainty, um, and you know, sort of by itself, Mika, you know, maybe is a B minus. You know, it, it's directionally correct in that it focuses on the centralized parts of of the of the market. Uh, the problem is the EU never stops. I mean, it is a it is a regulatory assembly line, and it just pumps out regulation. And so, you've got you got Mika, which is itself close to four hundred pages long. And they're just getting started on what they call the level two text, which are a bunch of delegated authorities to regulatory agencies within Mika. That'll add another thousand pages, let's say, across three plus uh, supervisory authorities. They're already starting to talk about Mika two and and uh, covering a lot of aspects that weren't included in Mika one. And then there's all there's a whole constellation of of regulations around Mika that touch crypto in various ways, um, such as the transfer funds regulation, the anti-money laundering uh, regulation, uh, anti-money laundering directive six, um, the data act, uh, DAC eight, which is a, a, a tax uh, data sharing directive, um, uh, payment services directive three, product liability directive two. And you know, these things aren't, you know, they don't have crypto in the name. And so people just sleep on them, even though some of them like DAC8, the, the tax reporting rule is explicitly and directly focused on crypto. And the and then all of those legislations will have level twos. And, and you can quickly see we're getting the tens of thousands of pages of regulation in the EU that will absolutely smother the, the industry there. And this is not new to EU. The, the EU excels at this. This is why the EU has no big Web two companies. And uh, you know, so it's not greener over there. It just seems like it is because it sucks so bad in the U.S. right now. But uh, as Noel said, the, the administrations are temporary, and the law in the U.S., which is the important thing, the permanent thing, the law in the U.S. is not changing. Uh, at least I don't expect any significant legislation to move through this Congress. And, you know, so this the, this administration, whether it's got 18 more months or five and a half years, uh, is temporary. And in that time, the EU will have you know tied its own noose with all of these regulations and the U.S. will come out the other side 
with, you know, in, in essentially the same competitive position that we went in. Uh, in short, you know, a much better, much better comparatively positioned to industry counterparts in, in Europe. So, you know, I, I, I'm not, I, I'm not on the, the doom and gloom chain. Which is encouraging because you're on the front line. You know, it was interesting. The first thing Pascal said to me when I asked him how things were in Washington, he said, quite pleasant. And I was shocked. Right to your point, you said that uh, he sort of found it inspired that there were so many people on the Hill that understood the tech and actually cared about this. And that perhaps a lot of what we're seeing publicly is maybe speaking the party line or just the outrage that that sells and maybe under the hood, it's not quite as bad to your point. So that was a bit encouraging. Simon, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, countering that, um, it it depends if it's the SEC or somebody else, because, you know, what came out is that the SEC believes that it's going to take a long time and that it doesn't need any adjusting. So it wants to shoot one into existing regulations which is which is all well and good as long as you're actually approving those companies under existing regulations so um i what what the us is experiencing is kind of what i experienced back in 2011 in the uk and so you know you've got like the the decentralized bit which was bitcoin uh and then you had the centralized companies and and the centralized companies you can kind of shoehorn the the only reason we survived for so long is because we took the opinion that, you know, funding Bitcoin companies was done via securities laws. And so from 2011, we had to change laws for two years. And then in 2013, we got registered uh, with the the UK financial, it was called the Financial Services Authority at time now, FCA. So that was like a two year process uh, just to get that. Now then, as soon as they realized we were funding Bitcoin companies, it got very, very hostile. And so that took two years to explain. Um, and then in, you know, from 2013 to 2015, we were able to do it because we had to find a, a jurisdiction that would support both securities for Bitcoin companies. Um, and so we've, we've been through all of that. Now, at the same time, we started working with the US. So we, we acquired a broker dealer at Bank to the Future. Um, and we started working on Jobs Act reforms. So we took what we did in the UK, and that took three years to get Reggae Plus, the ability to have 2,000 investors and all of those reforms. Um, but it took about four years till a US um, crypto company could use it, like Blockstack, I think, was the, the first one. Um, and uh, so, we, you know, we, we, we went through all these reforms, but... The only thing we could ever get, and we had a U.S. broker dealer, um, that was that we could do it for accredited investors. So all of the reforms, all of the ways of using it in an innovative way, uh, it was never quite possible within the U.S. So that, but Simon, that's also that. true. I, just to, uh, absolutely right. That's also true for non-crypto investments in the United States. Exactly. Like, the accredited yeah, was... investor laws are largely problematic beyond crypto. Yeah, so you know that that's what that's why we we focused on Jobs Act and that opened up who could be an investor. But then it led to this big application process. Um, you know, there was like a mini a mini IPO. So interestingly, it's interesting it's all come full circle to Coinbase because we actually built out a broker dealer in ATS and sold it to Coinbase in 2018. So we know the original team that had been sat there for five years waiting for the SEC to approve 
them to be able to use that broker dealer in ATS under, you know, to do things as securities. Um, so we, we get we get to where we are today. And it's kind of, if you look at the rest of the world, FATF said everyone's got to be a virtual asset service provider if they're an exchange. So everyone did that. And that kind of focuses on money laundering. Um, but in Europe, they've added the whole concept of special regulations for crypto companies. And they they, they went beyond virtual assets by saying, Actually, there's the opportunity for market manipulation and many of the things that we figured in securities laws. So they put full-blown regulations in Europe around that. Uh, but then still in, still in the US, you've, you've kind of got this, this two-tiered thing where they're saying, yeah, we have custody laws, we have banking laws, we have securities laws, we have commodities laws, come, come and apply. Um, but the most reputable companies in our industry that, that are applying Oh, yeah, we, we know that there's we know that there's absolutely no way to walk into the SEC and register. I mean, that's the biggest joke told by Gary Gensler on a daily basis. It's absolutely absurd to assume that that's going to be possible or going to happen. But it is encouraging, I would say, at least to see Coinbase pushing back in the way that they are. Right. I mean, we have a dog in the fight at this point. And I, I think it's also important to point out to people that just because a regulator says something is the case does not mean it is. And there's been a ton of pushback from the United States judicial system against the SEC. In fact, if you look at their recent history under Gensler, they just they just get slaughtered in court. And Bruce, I saw you lift your mic. And Brett, I want to give you a chance to speak too. But Bruce, I mean, it's, they're not winning. Yeah, I mean, this, th th that, that's great. It's great that there's pushback. I'm glad that Coinbase and others are doing it. And I'm glad that people are calling out, you know, what's, what's true here, which is what you just said, which is that, Unfortunately, and I can't even believe I'm saying this out loud, but the, the SEC chairman does not tell the truth on a regular basis. And it's so crazy. And the reason I can't believe that is because, one, uh, all my career, 30 years, I've never felt adversarial to the SEC. I felt like they were the ones who kept our industry clean and got bad guys. And I don't feel that anyway. And then, and the, and the second thing is, it's a huge risk for anybody to say this. You know, if somebody like me who's regulated, because we see this situation now. Um, and we see it now with the FBI and, and the Department of Justice and all these vaunted institutions of power where they are politically motivated. I mean, knowing what we know now and what just came out yesterday in the Durham report about the FBI and Donald Trump, I mean, it's not out of the realm of the possibility that somebody from the SEC is listening to this right now and says, oh, you've been you know, Fenton is criticizing my boss. Let's uh, make life difficult for, for, for him. And they can do that. Um, but, but the thing is, we have to call out what's true. We have to call out what's right or wrong. This is beyond politics. This is, this is America, our, our country that we're talking about. And if we have officials who are lying and abusing power at the FBI, or if they're saying false things at the SEC, we have to call that out. And unfortunately, Mr. Kensler is lying. He's lying to the public every day when he says that, you know, he, he paints this picture that our industry is just out of compliance cowboys and they're not in compliance because they don't feel like registering. That's just an absurd claim. There's millions and millions and millions of dollars being spent on lawyers at almost every major firm. Um, very, very serious people, people who've been regulated for, for decades in some cases like me. 
you know, very experienced attorneys who used to work for regulators, you know, big, big law firms, you know, people who are being paid $1,000 or more an hour with big teams. The idea that they're all just simultaneously just ignoring these rules as if it was easy to comply. I mean, don't you think that all these startups with tens and tens of millions of dollars, wouldn't one of those lawyers been able to figure out how to do it if it was possible? You know, the idea that Coinbase can just register or something like that, it's just completely false. And we can't, as an industry, stand by and give these people moral authority to regulate us when they're not acting morally. They're not acting ethically. They're lying flat out. If somebody in our industry lies flat out, especially somebody regulated like me, if you lie, you, you get in big trouble for it. You know, if, if a registered broker at Charles Schwab or Fidelity lies, it's a major, major problem. They're going to get in trouble with the regulators. So why are regulators allowed to, and even in their own response today, apparently they said that, you know, commissioners and even the chairman, you're not supposed to um, take what they say as, as if it's, uh, you know, reliable information. That's what the SEC basically replied. That's just stunning to me. That's stunning to me, you know, that, that, Hinman can go out and say that Ethereum's not a security, and then the SEC can kind of come back and be like, well, you know, that stuff doesn't count. That's absurd. If, if, if the lowest ranking employee at my company or at Coinbase or at any other company in this industry says something, you better believe the regulators are going to count that. If I had a, if I had a, a, a receptionist who said XYZ investment offered by Bruce Fenton is guaranteed, then I'd get in trouble. You know, you can't say things that are false. So how come we can have regulators who can continually say things that are false and, uh, you know, outright lies about our industry and not have accountability? We really, really must, you know, regardless of what political side you're on, we must, 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 uh, you know, push back against this or we have nothing. So, Bruce, how, how do you explain? Like, I don't know anyone um, that's been more involved in, you know, the Bitcoin and tokenization securities than you. And yet SBS was the only one that managed to get that meeting. How, how do you explain that? Well, you know, that <laughs> it, it, it's interesting because the person who, who appointed um, Gansler, uh, the boss of the SEC, his boss, uh, got millions in donations from Sam. You know, SBF gave uh, $11 million to Biden and I believe $30 million that we know of to various PACs on the Democrat side. And then there was other senior Republicans that gave another $25 million plus or so. And, uh, you know, and then he has this access. Why? How is that? You know, he had a couple meetings on his schedule. How is it that, I mean, I'm registered by his agency. I'm re I've been registered with the SEC for 30 years. We have an SEC registered broker deal. We couldn't possibly hope to get anyone to answer anything let alone a meeting with the chairman himself. Brian Armstrong runs a company a thousand times bigger than ours. Why can't he get meetings? You know, he had, he had meetings that, that went nowhere. They won't even answer basic questions. They can't even tell you whether something's tradable or not. You know, Gensler says this thing like, oh, well, you know, the exchanges should just register. Well, they have registered. You know, Coin, as, as Simon just mentioned, Coinbase has a registered ATS. I was on the board of another famous ATS, uh, T0. You know, I have a, a broker-dealer. There's a whole bunch of companies that have bought broker-dealers or set up broker-dealers. So they have registered. And then what? What can you do? Try asking the SEC. If you ask the SEC, you say, okay. So Mr. Gensler said, go out and register. Well, we've done that. We've registered. And Coinbase has registered. And TCU has registered. And a whole bunch of others. So then what can you do, Mr. Gensler? 
Could you please answer that? Absolutely not. Concretely, you know, I think the issue is not whether companies can get meetings with either the staff or the chairman and, you know, getting the, the meeting with the chairman of, you know, agency like the SEC or the CFTC is ultimately not, you know, the thing that gets you like the concrete answers to specific problems you have. Most of that is solved at the staff level. But right, the problem here is concretely, if you try to, for example, do what the chair has said publicly, which is register a crypto exchange as a national securities exchange. Well, that requires, you know, registering with a particular form, form one for national securities exchange. There are aspects to that application or aspects of the regulation that apply to traditional securities like equities or fixed income products that don't quite fit map neatly onto most digital assets, maybe some, but not most. And so when you go to attempt to go through the registration process, you end up running into these roadblocks. And then at that point, you need answers. You need answers from the staff or you need answers from the agency on how do you actually comply given these idiosyncrasies of the particular asset class. And it's those particular questions that haven't been answered. Like for, for example, if you're going to register a security, you have to have a registered transfer agent who is responsible for, you know, like the record keeping of, you know, moving securities between the actual owners of that security. Well, in, in the case where a public decentralized blockchain is essentially acting as the transfer agents, how does that, you know, public decentralized blockchain running by nodes all over the world register as a transfer agent? You can't. So there are many issues. Tell like me to give you the answer of that. Because Securitize did it, so they're a, they're a transfer agent. Um, I'm, I'm full disclosure, I'm a shareholder in Securitize, and they do the, the blockchain-based securities, and they're a transfer agent. Uh, and the way they do that is you actually have to create a centralized database version of the blockchain, back it up on a spreadsheet, um, and then you have to, in case there was a hack or anything like that, you have to revert back to the spreadsheet. Um, and, and that is the, the, the way you get yourself a registered transfer agent with the SEC. They, they want you to default it back to the old way of doing things. Right. And that's, you know, one of 30 different, you know, exemptions you would need to the particular registration. And so I think like stepping back, I, not that I am sympathetic to the, like the either intra or interorganizational dysfunction happening at, you know, within our governmental agencies of preventing real, you know, rules from being written here. But I am sympathetic to the challenge that the SEC as an, as an organization faces when it comes to digital assets, which is the fact that, you know, the America has the largest, you know, securities and derivatives capital, you know, markets in the world. And yes, we have strict regulations there, but the existence of these regulations, these sort of clearly defined rules has enabled our economy to grow these unbelievable participants, these unbelievable products, these gigantic markets. And the obvious concern here is that by kind of opening the floodgates with rules around crypto, it could completely alter the, the course of history for equity markets. Imagine if, you know, you wrote the rules incorrectly and tomorrow every single like stock, you know, delisted from, you know, NASDAQ and NYSE and then like reissued their stock as tokens. And it kind of was a loophole around all those existing securities rules. 
I completely understand the challenge in writing those rules, but the goal of the organizations like the SEC and CFTC should be to meet the challenge of the present day head on and figure out and work with industry partners who are obviously more than willing to work with them on this to actually create these rules. And I think Noel said it perfectly, which is we should understand this as an ephemeral stage that people and organizations turn over and we will at some point return to a state where we're able to make forward progress in the U.S. And people should not just throw the entire U.S. economy out the window and say this is never going to work here. People should be building companies here for the long term with the understanding that eventually the right people will be in charge. And it's not going to be like we're going to be able to do anything we want. And we maybe end up with rules similar to Mika in that, you know, they're not perfect and they're strict, but at least they define the correct constraints that people can actually build and innovate here. Yeah, that's the old idea that uh, negative clarity is better than no clarity at all, which I think everybody would prefer. Long gone are the days of people assuming that they'll just be able to operate in the Wild West in the United States. I think that uh, a lot more prag pragmatic than that. We also added Alex uh, Damster here, uh, who, under the account here, Crypto Immersion, who is an ex-SEC lawyer, uh, securities lawyer, so can probably offer some color as to what's happening there. I actually alluded to the fact that the SEC has struggled to some degree in some court cases. Also, Jeremy Kaufman, I see you in the audience. I don't want to put you on the spot. I know you might just be listening, but obviously as CEO of Library, you probably have more insight into what's happening, uh, has happened here than, than anyone else. But Alex, I, I don't know what your thoughts on the conversation thus far. Um, so, I mean, I just came in. So, um, you know, I, I heard a little bit uh, and came up, but um so generally speaking, a couple of general fallacies that we have in this space that I, I generally try to address is first, this is a very regulated space. It's just not a compliance space. The idea that there's no rules is has been debunked like uh, about like since its inception. Um, I've been in the space since 2016 and, um, and basically my first talk to 200 people, a packed house. That's <laughs> it, was, it was so much smaller back then. Um, but I remember telling people, you know, look, the rules apply and people were like, no, boo, you know, and I and I just said, well, but they do. Um, and here's how they work. And uh, the idea that somehow tokens were exempt from securities regulations was wrong. Uh, and and that that's where everything starts. Right. Is this idea that we love to cling to that somehow our technology is different or special or unique or makes us somehow uh, exempt from these rules simply because we want it to be or because we can operate cross-border or something like that. Um, none of that is true, you know, uh, and, and all of the regulatory agencies have been super clear about that. Um, there are problems with the regulations, but to be clear, other than ones like the counterparty rules, uh, which um, which make no sense, to be honest, like a lot of these, they haven't made sense since, um, you know, uh, broker dealers are no longer the center of most of these transactions, right? They've been the center of transact, but like most of these rules are predicated on this idea that broker dealers are the center of every transaction. And that hasn't been true for, you know, a more than, you know, a decade, right? Like a couple decades. And the problem, right, that we have is a lot of these rules are based on this idea that there's a registered person in the middle who's licensed, 
who has, is obligated to tell the truth to retail parties uh, and gives them information. Um, and that doesn't happen with like e-traders and things like that. And, uh, and that there's some protection that's offered by putting a wall between uh, you know, opportunities and people who don't have money. I don't really understand that whole scenario. I have a long rant on it, but that's, you know, kind of that whole idea doesn't work, but doesn't work for anybody, not just in this space. The idea that doesn't work for us, uh, like there's a couple of them, including the how the custody rules work. But one of the primary ideas is this idea that somehow we're able to report on who our counterparty is. And when you think about it, you know, how am I supposed to say like, well, my other party was this alphanumeric code with a cat, uh, you know, uh, NFT in it, go find that person. So, yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure how that's supposed to work, but. Well, I, I think that, uh, I think part of what you say is obviously true, but it's, and, and you have the insight, but it's a lot deeper than that. I mean, Coinbase is a publicly listed company. They were, which which had to obviously go through the SEC, had 30 meetings discussing the, the products that they were offering. So I, I think that, uh, you know, that, the, the truth is probably somewhere. In well, between. but no, um, but that's and, not see, that's that's not that's not fair, actually, because there is this idea that somehow the SEC approves Coinbase's offerings. That's not what happens. There's no way for Coinbase to get those offerings approved. That's become very clear. Any, any, anyone who's even attempted, I'm going to let, uh, I see that uh, Jeremy's here, uh, Jeremy Kaufman. You're the poster child for this, right? It, 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 you, you literally walked into the SEC. Um, is, am I sounding strange to you guys? Okay, yeah, Jeremy, 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 Jeremy lifted his mic. Uh, I sounded a bit weird. Um, Jeremy, yeah. Can you guys hear me, or do I sound normal yeah. now? Okay. Can you guys Can you guys hear me? Okay. Yeah, we can. I mean, Jeremy, you literally walked into the SEC with a PowerPoint presentation about what you were going to be doing, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and they used it against us. So I think I actually can't even believe that there's a, a competing notion out there that the that the SEC is is being remotely fair, that there are rules of the road that can be followed. It's completely fake. I spent six years. Not once did they answer a single constructive sentence. They claim that the rules exist and that you can follow them. But it, literally any attempt to follow them simply results in in people getting sued uh and, and even now even throughout settlement discussions we have uh you know we have a, a product odyssey that's being used by tens of millions of people each month we want people to be able to purchase small dollar amounts of cryptocurrency for direct usage and consumption how can we follow the law in doing that they won't tell us a single thing not one thing um and they've made it clear that if we do it wrong they'll sue us again uh, but if they can't tell us how to do it right and they won't answer any questions, we we, we, we gave them pages of plans uh, and they just used it against us as evidence. So, yeah, they, they I mean, they are you should view <laughs> you should view these people as evilly as you possibly can. They are outright sociopaths. Uh, uh, that's what they are. I love you, Jeremy. Uh, Bruce or Simon, either of you can do yeah, I'll give a, I'll give a, I'll give a middle ground. It's, um, I, I think, I think both are right for the following reasons. So, if you think about it. We, we had Bitcoin, and then they said, I think it was 2013, you want to register as a money transmitter. It's a commodity. Um, and then, you know, we, we, we then evolve into this space where everyone starts creating our own tokens, uh, which clearly are subject to manipulation, disclosure requirements, and all that type of stuff. Um, and so it, I think it's true what, what Alex says, that 
there are rules for custody and, and the regulators, you know, money transmitters can, can regulate what they, what they regulate. Um, custody can regulate custody, securities can regulate securities, um, and uh, exchanges can have, all of these regulations exist. Or the bit that's missing is that um, if you, they didn't, when you applied for all of those, um, you didn't get accepted. They didn't adjust their framework for the new technology. Um, and so if, if the SEC starts approving you know, token offerings that uh, want to do full disclosure and want to trade on ATSs and uh, want to, you know, subject themselves to um, good practices of disclosure rather than market manipulation and pumps and dumps and all that stuff, um, then then all they needed to do was take the existing rules and approve the companies that just wanted to do it in a new format. Same with custody. You know, it, it's quite simple. Separate client assets. Don't touch them. Um, and have good checks and controls to ensure that um, you know you have all those assets, and then it's illegal for them to be used. So all of that framework does exist. Uh, they're, they're just not allowing these new companies to fit in yeah. within that framework. I mean, to be clear, I think we all, everybody on this stage, agrees that probably tens of thousands of unnecessary crypto coins have or tokens have been launched that were probably unregistered securities. Right. But that, that, but, but just because that happened and there is the casino element doesn't mean it's true. And you throw the baby out with the bathwater on the ones who are legitimate and, and trying and to up the ante on that, we can't even get clarity between the CFTC and the SEC on what's a security and what's a commodity on some of the top assets by market cap. So there's literally no way that anybody could walk into this space and know how to go approach a regulator. Yeah, that's, 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 it. that's all they need to do. They just need to say, this is a commodity. These ones are securities. Correct, but they won't. Just follow the framework. They literally right. won't. They can't, that's exactly. getting that answer. That's the thing that's key, what Scott just said, is the ones who do want to comply. So I you know, I push back at what Crypto Immersion Alex said, which is that you know, I don't think it's about companies that just don't want to comply. Yeah, sure, in 2016, there were, there's companies who were, who were foolish and said, uh, you know, oh, tokens are different. They don't. They, they're not subject to the law. Well, that was a bad take. That was a dumb take. Anybody with experience knew that that was a bad take. And there was a whole bunch of us who went down the other road and said, oh, no, 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 that's a bad take. We know this is regulated. Let's go spend millions and millions of dollars on lawyers and registrations and ATSs and broker dealers and fingerprints and email monitoring and 10 zillion other things. So why is it that not one single company has been able to navigate through this? We're all scammers. We're all wild west. They, they have. Why, why do you say not one single company has? Who? There's, there's even one. a registered exchange. Who? There's even a token exchange. INX is a token exchange. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's so great that you use INX as an example. Thank you. Let me tell you the truth about INX. We are a registered broker dealer. In the United States, we are licensed to sell securities. We're licensed to sell over-the-counter securities. We're licensed to sell listed securities. INX is a licensed listed security, correct? They're a listed security that fired, filed a full uh, offering with the SEC, correct? Can we sell them as a registered broker-dealer? You're a lawyer. Can you give me that advice if it's so easy? Can you, put me a, can you write me a letter as a lawyer if I give you... $50,000, can you write me a very simple I, I letter as a lawyer that says, no, no, hold on, that says that I can sell that as a registered broker dealer who's licensed to sell securities in America. Can I sell INX? 
which is a which is a registered security in America. Can I do that, or can anyone do that? Under any circumstances, you have to be a special purpose broker dealer. And how many of those? No, sir. How many of those? No, sir. Simon, a special purpose broker dealer under the FINRA regulations cannot sell to retail. So sorry, that is what they'll tell you, Simon, but that's not correct either. There's not even one of them that's approved. Right, there's none, but that wouldn't solve it anyway because the special purpose broker dealer guidance from FINRA specifically excludes retail and specifically excludes you being able to sell that. It's for custodians only. So the fact is that INX is a perfect example. I, uh, I was on an SEC call with the SEC and I asked him, I said, well, we're a registered broker dealer, licensed to sell securities. They're a registered security. Can we sell them? Crickets. Crickets. And there's not one lawyer in America and there's not one regulator in America who can tell you if you can legally sell INX. So that's a perfect example. Even though they went through three years of work, millions of dollars, and like everything else in this, all these other companies that tried to comply spent millions of dollars on this. They have an ATS. Is it operating? Is anybody trading that? You know, this is the problem. This is exactly the problem. Okay, can I answer? Have at it. Okay. Uh, so, so that, so the the part where there isn't actually the rest of the uh, the system that's in place of whether or not you can actually have uh, the traders that are available for the for retail um, that isn't an order book scheme or something like that, which because you know the SECs also said they hate order books. So if you can't do an order book and you need to use a broker and it has to be a particular type of broker, but there isn't a broker available, that is bullshit. I mean that it is. That's crap. Uh, I I think that that you know that system doesn't work. Are they? Do they have actual? Uh, do they have things trading on them? Yes. Do they have a lot trading on them? No. They're you know they're dealing with you know larger companies uh, that are that are doing things where they're taking assets that are already trading and then wrapping them in uh, in tokens right now. Um, do they want to do things that are you know like regular offerings for sure? Uh, right now, is this environment actually? conducive to that not particularly and that's where things get really particular i'm not saying that the sec or any of the regulatory parties are actually doing a great job the basic idea though that there's no rules doesn't work the idea but there is isn't there's no rules that can be actually followed there, otherwise we would have done it or somebody else would have done it no well no I there maybe are so, rules. Wait, 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 wait. one second one second one second one second the... go ahead brett <laughs> I was saying maybe to mediate between these two viewpoints uh, here is that I, I don't think anyone is saying that there are no rules, um, including like the Coinbase's of the world or whatever. I think maybe the issue is that let's let's say like you just take all of the existing rules at face value, and you want to register either a token as a security or a securities exchange or a securities broker in the context of digital assets. I think the current, you find that the current climate makes it difficult to get any kind of approval. And also that there's sort of like the hazard of the more that you discuss your business, the more likely you are to be, you know, brought an enforcement action against for having revealed aspects of your current business. And so the climate is such that as people try, the, the more people try to kind of comply with the existing rules, or the, the kind of the worse it is for them. And so it's not necessarily a matter of people thinking that there are no rules, just that if you want to interpret the rules of space value for digital assets, because of what's mostly a political 
issue and not like a substantive issue here and uh, a matter of kind of who's in charge and sort of the organizational dysfunction that people are unable to kind of get through on the current rule set alone. And so the ask for clarity is around kind of like uh, forcing a real process by which you know, digital asset companies aren't treated unfairly in comparison to kind of other companies in the security space, uh, given, the, you know, what, what, what the current rule sets are out there. Uh, maybe that's my opinion on the middle ground here. Go ahead, Noel. Following on from what Brett was saying, what, what a lot of the debate that we're having here today is highlighting, the deeper we go into the details, the more we realize that the definitions themselves have not yet been set. We don't know which crypto assets are securities and which aren't, agreeably, most of them probably are, but the jury is out on Ethereum, for instance, and that's a pretty important component of the crypto markets. Uh, it, the approach is also very different. The United States is very hung up on, de on deciding which is and which isn't. Europe has sort of decided to not pay attention to that. Hong Kong, the same. Not going down that route, just going to treat crypto as a different asset class and set frameworks around that. This highlights very different approaches, which comes down to definitions, which also is influenced by the inherent structures. The United States has many financial regulators, Asia and Europe, not so many. That does give them a certain amount of it agility, which is surprising when it comes to Europe, but there you have it. The whole thing is a philosophical question, really. What are financial regulators there for? Arguably, they're there to protect investors and they're there to protect the sanctity of the financial system. Are they doing that today? And coming back to the question you asked at the very beginning, uh, Scott, you know, will U.S. regulators kill crypto? No, they weren't. Crypto is flourishing elsewhere. But until the United States gets to grip in conjunction with other regulators around the world as to what the question actually is, it's going to be very hard to find the answer. Jeremy, I know that you had a point uh, to make. Go ahead. Yeah. So I also wanted to bring it back to that original question around whether the regulators will kill crypto. You know, regulators made drugs illegal. Did that mean that people didn't buy drugs anymore? No, because entrepreneurs stepped up and they created them. They knew there was a market uh, for a good and service and they provided it. You know, around a decade ago, I used uh, the black market to purchase uh, some drugs in New York City, some marijuana. It was a better user experience than Coinbase is today. Okay, it was. I didn't have to give them any ID. I took out some cash and they gave it to me. They came to my, uh, to, to my apartment where I was staying. So thinking of this, uh, as the law is reality is a is a completely uh, uh, wrong framing. Um, and the real test is, will people be able to use cryptocurrency as free people? Uh, and it's clear that Coinbase is, is not going to be able to do that. The real test is look at situations like the Canadian trucker protests, where we had people that were being debanked by their own government. We had people uh, a thousand miles away who had cash in their pocket and they wanted to get the cash to those truckers and they wanted to do it anonymously. They wanted to do it with the properties of cash. And whether that remains possible will be a question for entrepreneurs. Will entrepreneurs create and facilitate experiences that make it so that cryptocurrency can remain peer to peer and can continue to function? Um, but that's a question of what entrepreneurs do. Uh, it's not a, strictly a question of the law because the government can't just say something and make it reality. So I just wanted to, to make sure that I think that's a good thing to remember when we ask about can the government kill uh, cryptocurrency. 
Yeah, it's a bit hyperbolic, admittedly. I think that uh, the better question maybe can be, will U.S. regulators kill crypto in the United States? Of course, right. But 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 to your point, you can't kill something uh, that anyone can use globally, uh, and Americans will continue, at least for now, to access via VPN and DeFi and endless ways that they're going to do it. So it's just going to push them into less protected and shadier sort of corners no, no. It if the regulation is harder, which is the bigger problem. I mean, you can even, Jeremy, I know you're about to speak, but like look at the CFI collapses of last year. I'm certainly not claiming that Celsius, Voyager, BlockFi, et cetera, are good actors, but the SEC certainly failed to protect the consumers that were using them in advance. No, to be clear, actually, my position is that is not. Uh, I, I think the regulators are winning here because the entrepreneurs aren't stepping up and delivering the solutions to bypass regulators. The entrepreneurs are still thinking in the mindset of, oh, I need to comply with the regulators. The entrepreneurs need to be thinking more like drug dealers is what I'm saying. OK, because Bitcoin did not work for the Canadian trucker protests. It did not work. By that, I mean someone who had never used Bitcoin before was not able to take cash out of their pocket and get it to the truckers a thousand miles away. They weren't able to. They could go to Coinbase and take out their ID and show it to them, but they, they don't want to do that. That's not the experience that they wanted. They wanted the, key, okay. the key word there is entrepreneurs, and this brings us to the Bitcoin maximalist argument that, the, that, that you know, if somebody, an entrepreneur, create something and they that that thing that they create is even traded on a dex and the u.s says if any u.s resident purchases that on a dex then you as a person have become um have created a securities offering in the u.s um, and therefore you have to kyc everything in order to ensure that it's not touched in the u.s then that, that kind of breaks. And, and this comes into that our whole definition of DeFi, where the, there's only really one DeFi, and that's Bitcoin, because it wasn't created with the expectation of profits by the management and control of others with a, a common enterprise. So the US have kind of covered it to do that, but it, it goes into the Bitcoin maximalist argument, which is kind of why decentralization matters. Yeah, absolutely makes make, makes sense. Um, Alex, I'm sorry, you got cut off before. I did want to give you a chance to respond. I just wanted to make sure that everybody got their uh, their points in as well. I'm not sure she's here. Can everybody still hear me? Yeah, give me a thumbs up if you can. Okay, perfect, perfect. I, <laughs> Bruce, are we the uh, are the drug dealers better than Coinbase? <laughs> you know, it's ironic that Jeremy uses that example, which I love. Uh, because you can continue the, the, the analogy. Um, the reason that ICOs came about is the same reason that crack came about. Crack, the, 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 the U.S. has a drug, a drug war that's been a failure for you know, 50 years or whatever. It's this failed drug war that wastes a lot of money and puts more people in prisons than the Soviets saw in gulags at their height and costs us a lot of money and on and on. Um, so they decided that cocaine was the, the drug that they were focused on in the 80s, and they really cracked down on it because of Miami Vice and Ronald Reagan's uh, wife made that a crusade. Um, and as a result, the drug dealers said, well, boy, it's really, really hard to transport, you know, 10 kilos or, you know, 50 pounds of cocaine. Let's, you know, boil it down, make it way more powerful and way cheaper. And while we're at it, maybe we'll throw in some additives and stuff and increase our profits and the addictability, you know, addic addictiveness as well. So that's how crack was born. Crack came about because 
of uh, the drug war because cocaine was illegal because the drugs were illegal. So they ended up with something worse. Uh, crack and 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 it, you know some of the modern methamphetamines those came about because it's easier for for drug dealers to support to to bring around smaller uh, amounts. So it's exactly the same as the ICO craze because because it's so difficult to be a security in the United States. The sad thing is we spend a lot of time debating is this a security or 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 isn't it? What would be nice is if it didn't matter. If you say yeah sure it's a security it's not a security doesn't really matter you know if you're security. Uh, you have to tell the truth, and if you commit fraud, uh, somebody's going to watch out for you. That would be nice. You know, just have securities rules where it's like, it doesn't matter. But in the United States, unfortunately, they're so out of touch, and they're so broken, that being a security becomes the kiss of death. Most people outside the U.S., the first question they'll say is like, whoa, 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 is this available in the U.S.? I don't want anything to do with it. Is this a security? I don't want anything to do with so, it. And you had a whole generation, oh, let me just finish this point, you had a whole generation of entrepreneurs in 2016, 17, because it's so difficult to be a security in the U.S., they went into their lawyers and they said, how do I not be a security? And the lawyer looked at the 33 Act and said, okay, strip out everything from this definition. Make sure it doesn't share dividends. It doesn't have a central management. You're not looking at the uh, you know, work of others to improve it. It's not a bond. It's not stock. It's not equity. It doesn't have dividends. And they strip out everything that makes it any good. So you end up with this pile of junk. If they would have never had those regulations, we would have never had an ICO way. We would have maybe had a wave of profitable companies with real structures. So then, I mean, is there a happy medium there, obviously? Because what you're describing, basically, and I think it goes back to a huge problem we had last year, once again, with CPI, is lack of disclosures. If we had transparency and disclosure, to your point, it doesn't really matter if you're a security, as long as people know what they're buying and the risks involved, right? So you could theoretically have people who only invest in something that is a security because that's their risk preference and the tolerance therefore but you can also have uh, pepe and meme coins going nuts over in the casino and people can participate the same way they play craps in vegas or buy a lottery ticket i mean is that basically what you're just yeah, everybody should be able to invest in anything they want it shouldn't matter whether it's a security or not they should be able to invest in anything whether it's a roll of a dice or a crap table or a magic card tournament or library.com or Microsoft, Google, Facebook, Tesla, Dogecoin. People should be able to buy whatever they want. This idea that we need nanny state bureaucrats and that people would look at the world in 2023 with all of these problems and say, yeah, you know, I really do want the politicians more in my life. That's just an absurd notion. We don't need these pinheaded fools. Look at these people. Half of them can't even speak or put a coherent sentence together. These laws were written by people who were World War One veterans. The laws were written in 1933. We don't need these pinheaded status nanny state Karens telling us you can buy this, you can buy that, you can run this piece of code. We don't need any of them. We could scrap the entire thing. And you go back to basics. It's against a lot of steal. It's against a lot of commit fraud. It's against a lot of lie. You know, and when you're taking money for it, and then you go back to those, and that that would cover 90% of the problems. And instead, they put up this artificial you know, massive machine of nonsense and bureaucracy and corruption that doesn't do anything to stop the actual fraud. They didn't stop FTX, it was right under their nose. They didn't stop Bernie Madoff, who was right under their nose. Bernie Madoff was head of the reg of the biggest regulator. And I wish Brett was still here because I wanted to challenge him on this. He should, be, he should be called out that, you know, Brett was on this date talking about this stuff, but he was also president of FTX. So when he defends the idea that it's no big deal that Gary... Gensler met with Sam, that fact that he was president of FTX should be noted. You know, th this is a broken system. That's an important disclosure. 
Yeah, that's a pretty freaking important disclosure. And this is exactly why the world is broken, because we have corruption, rampant corruption, and people who are apologizing for it. And we have this completely broken system with a bunch of nanny state Karens who are reigning on one of the most important industries in the world, an industry that despite these attacks, we've still managed to have growth and still managed to create jobs because we have a better invention because we can do stuff that couldn't be done before the invention of a distributed ledger. And we can do cool things now. And if these pinheaded Karens would just get out of the way, we could make the world a lot better and we could improve all kinds of things, not just money, but also securities and collectibles and everything else. I'm going to make pinhead Karen t-shirts for everybody who's in the spaces. That's that's my next uh, business venture. Seth, I saw that you had a, a comment that you lifted your mic. Yeah, you know, so I was going to say, uh, you know, to, to Bruce's point, um, you know, the, the, the way the securities laws were, were written in, in the 30s it, it is not too far removed from, you know, from, from what, you know, Bruce described as the way things, you know, ought to be. Um, you know, the, the, the securities laws in the U.S. are, are, are a disclosure regime, right? The, the concept is the laws require, uh, you know, insiders who have asymmetric information to disclose truthful information so the, uh, the, you know, the public can make informed buying decisions, right? That's the, the basic premise of the securities laws. And so it's a disclosure regime. Uh, the problem is, over the decades, the, that, that disclosure mission has been whittled down and 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 the sec has has undergone significant sort of mission creep uh to the point where now you know even though every time Ginsler justifies he talks about you know being a disclosure regime but they're not they're de facto a merit regulator right what so what that means is um you know they they are not supposed to pass upon the merits of a particular investment opportunity but they do and if they don't like it um, they have myriad ways to uh, extract concessions and changes out of the issuer, or they will just simply sit on it. Uh, it's a, a you know a desk veto. They'll just not not move uh, the application, not approve it, and you just die by by atrophy. Um, so you know they they've gone you know, and this is not you know just a Gary Ginsburg problem, although he's probably the most. Um, extreme example of it, but this has been happening at the SEC for years and years. Um, you know, they, they have become a de facto merit regime. Um, and, and perhaps the, uh, you know, the evolution under, under Gensler is now they're a politically motivated merit regime, which is a, a drastic departure from the, uh, the, the framework and the mission and the structure set up in the 1933 act. Go ahead, Simon. Yeah, does anyone know the answer? Because um, in, in jurisdictions I've dealt with, when, when a regulator finds an, an institution, it doesn't actually go to that institution. It's like a whole process for distributing those funds. Um, in the US, when the SEC makes those fines, do they all go to that particular institution? Essentially, is there this potential to set up the money grab scenario that we've experienced? Because, you know, completely different entity, but I'm absolutely appalled. The most shocking thing I have seen was that headline that uh, the IRS wants to take the proceeds of crime and all of the, the client money from creditors by suing FTX for $44 billion ahead of all of the creditors. I mean, that's mafia. Um, Absolute insanity. Yeah. Absolute insanity. That, that was... 
of all the headlines this year, that may have been the most astonishing, and that's saying quite a lot. I think you're absolutely right. And for those who don't know, effectively, the IRS is, has a claim against FTX and steps ahead of the unsecured creditors, which is each and every one of you or anyone else who lost money on FTX to collect that money, which means that effectively, if you're a former customer of FTX, that you're now in line behind the IRS and the, and the bulk of the money that was available would theoretically go to them, meaning that your claim goes down in value. I, I don't know the exact amount, but tr tremendously. No, it's forty-four billion. That wipes out every creditor. Every yeah, and no they're not they're not clawing back. The, the government gets it all, or more accurately, Zelensky gets it all. You know, and Gensler gets it. You know, it goes right back to these agencies, and you know that that's like yeah. So, Bruce, does it does the money go to the SEC from these funds? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Somebody else might know that. I know. I know. Like you said, with a lot of these forfeitures, I know it does go to the agency. I'm not sure exactly how. It I, I don't believe it goes to funding the SEC, but I would have to confirm that. I, we had a conversation about this before. Uh, I, I can't say for sure, but I don't think that that's actually the case. So I think that most. Often when the SEC goes for one of these cases, it's more for a headline and for further funding. But we are seeing that the SEC is about to get massively more funding. I hate to say it, but we shouldn't rule out corruption. You know, I wouldn't have thought this just a couple of years ago. But I mean, if we look at the revelations and, and, and you know, on the one hand, it's sad to make this political and I'm not trying to make this about one party or another. But on the other hand, if you're still a Democrat and you're still in crypto, you got to really kind of do some soul searching. I know there's a lot of people, particularly in the Ethereum camp, who, you know, kind of were very big Biden supporters. But you got to look if you're looking at, at Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden and Brad Sherman. And you're in this industry, you've got to kind of make a choice. I mean, it, it, you know, it makes about as much sense as if you're a gun store owner. And you're, it, I mean, there might be some gun store owners that are Biden supporters, but it just kind of doesn't make sense. It's sort of like, you know, cutting off one of your but, own organs or something. Right. But, which may make sense to some people. I don't know. It's, it's, yeah, but Bruce, you know what I find interesting is that um, the tone has changed dramatically over the last year. And, and I think we have to look at obviously FTX and SBF in particular as the likely reason for that. It's certainly not in defense of any of our uh, our legislators or anyone in government. But a year ago, you know, we had Biden coming out with an executive order that effectively said, hey, this is a real asset class. It's important. Let's figure out how to regulate it and how to make sure the consumers are protected and said, you know, going to every three letter agency, come up with your proposal. You have six months. Tell us what you're going to be doing here. Right. That's now turned to literal tweets from the president of the United States saying that uh, Republicans want to, you know, uh, diminish your food safety while we just want to take money from crypto trillionaires. Yeah, but I, I was skeptical. The minute he asked for recommendations from agencies, I felt that was an attack. Because when you go like, hey, what's up? You know that some agencies are going to come back with something negative. And at the very best, you have a bunch of busy body nanny state Karens sitting around bureaucracy offices paid for by our tax dollars in fancy marble buildings paid for by our tax dollars sitting around figuring out how to screw the entrepreneur and screw the American public. So at the, at the best, you have a, a waste of resources. But at worst, you're going to have a couple of those agencies who take that as a cue. They're like, Okay, the handlers of the old man, because it's not it's not Biden who decides anything. It's whoever his handlers are. But the handlers, they're saying like, oh, the handlers are sending this message. They want something done about it. It doesn't take much to think, oh, I'm the ATF. Let me figure out how I can kind of screw this industry, which apparently the, the boss man, uh, um, uh, Mr. Ten Percent or whatever he's called, uh, you know, doesn't like. You know, so that's that's. Um, you know, I viewed that as an attack all along and right around, you know, they were proposing legislation, but don't forget who wrote that. That was Sam, you know, SBF's crew. 
And I think their plan was to push this bad set of regs. And there's a bunch of people in the crypto space, a lot of these, you know, DC think tanks, you know, the same kind of people who donated to my opponent when I ran for Senate and called themselves crypto people. You know, there's a, there's a bunch of these folks who were active in pushing Sam's legislation. You know, Sam spent all the SBF spent a lot of money that he stole from 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 customers on pushing this bad legislation. And there's people in this space who are like, oh, pro crypto. It wasn't pro crypto. It was an attack by the administration. And and now that, and then once that failed because Sam's house of cards came cl- crashing down, then they pivot. Hey, all right, well, we wanted to screw this industry anyway. Let's just outright screw it. So we have Operation, you know, choke point 2.0 going on right now in this sort of all out attack. So I don't see it so much as a shift in policy it's just a shift in messaging you know they they, they thought they could do it one way now they're doing it the, with the hammer I, I think that's fair seth i'm gonna give you one second i just want to make a point uh, but i do think that to some degree there was just egg on the face of all these people and they literally just politically don't feel like they can support this industry period even if quietly they wanted to right if you met with sam and you said how great crypto was now you're just not going to do that period yeah actually i think you know i think you guys are both right um you know, I, on the executive order, uh, you know, I, that, that was a, a masterful uh, you know, example of, of marketing. And, you know, much of the crypto industry, uh, you know, sort of gobbled that up. And I think it's because they, they, they heard what they wanted to hear uh, and not, you know, not what the, the executive order actually said and, and certainly not what it signaled, which I think, you know, Bruce is, is much more. Um, you know, attuned to it, attuned to that. If you actually look at the, the number of reports uh, required to be prepared by the executive order, I forget the exact number, but it was in their you know, mid upper teens. All but one of them uh, was sort of designed to be to, to deliver a negative result, an anti crypto result. Uh, one of them in, in the that was directed to the Department of Commerce, uh, you know, potentially w- was set up to be pro crypto. Uh, so it was. You know, it was always negative. Uh, you know, I think the, the headline, um, you know, was delivered as this is pro crypto, but it never was. Um, and, you know, I don't think that the the uh, attitude or approach of the administration to the industry, um, you know, changed as a result of or in response to FTX. I think FTX merely provided the cover uh, for, you know, for them to sort of transition from a, uh, you know, a, sort of a wait and see to an, an, an overtly hostile posture. Uh, but, it, you know, it, it was never positive. Uh, and, and the executive order was never positive. It was never meant to be. Um, they just sort of simply hadn't turned on the, the, the full court press yet. And, and that's what FTX uh, enabled. Well, I believe in strong opinions loosely held. You guys convinced me that it was never positive. So <laughs> I, I take back everything I said about the uh, White House executive order. If you and Bruce uh, certainly agree in that direction. And I think, yeah, I mean, certainly at this point, looking back, uh, it's hard to argue with that. Right. So then the question is, and we hinted at this before, is this simply just wait for regime change and then we get what we want? You know, uh, the 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 crazy thing to me is that even if we get horrid legislation or a crap down or any of it we've seen that these parties just reverse the decision the minute they get into office if it changes so i mean even if we get bad legislation or poor regulation here could it just be changed by another administration coming in i mean it could we we see that all the time um 
you know, and I, you know, but, but it, what we see changing typically is not legislation, right? The legislation by design, it's, it's very hard to pass laws in the U.S. And, and therefore it's very hard to change them once, once they get through. What we see going back and forth are things like executive orders and, you know, agency guidance, um, sometimes agency rules, but even those are, are more permanent and more difficult to change. Um, it's the, it's sort of the soft things that, that, you know, change with the, with the administrations and those things are, are temporary anyway, like, like we said earlier. So, you know, I think the answer is not, um, you know, we're not, we're not going to, we're not going to win and we're not going to ultimately lose, um, through policy. I don't believe my, you know, my view is we have to engage in that. We have to play that game. Um, and, um, uh, you know, sort of be part of the process. Um, but but we win by building, uh, and, and and we you know a number of speakers spoke to this earlier in the day. I think um, you know a great example is is prohibition, right? In the last century, the United States outlawed alcohol for eleven years or something like that, and consumption of alcohol in the U.S. actually went up, uh, and that's because it's a uh, it's it was simply a product that people wanted. Um, you know, a more modern example might be something like Uber. Um, right. A lot of, you know, there were a lot of entrenched interests um, in, um, you know, sort of preserve, preserving the, the monopoly of, uh, of, of the taxi companies and the, the city medallion system. Right. And it lost because Uber was a superior product that the people wanted. Right. That's how we win. We just got to keep building, keep improving experience. Uh, you know, and maybe that building in the meantime ha- needs to take place somewhere else. Um, you know, but eventually, you know, we will win if we're providing a product that people want. Well, I can't, can't wait to get my hands on the ledger stacks. <laughs> I love, I love to hear it. I, I love mine. They're super slick. Speaking of projects and products that people want, guys, I think we've uh, beaten this dead horse for today. Uh, and I know that we will inevitably come back to it. I want to remind you guys once again, that starting next Monday, it'll be 10 30 AM probably instead of 11. We're going to be doing these every single day. All of you who are, have been guests today you're welcome to speak show up anytime uh we'll be hosting it alongside uh mario Nafal, as i said and uh ran Nooner, uh from crypto banter uh we'll be rotating probably the channels but we are committed to at least uh two hours every single weekday so uh yeah i, I can only talk about regulation so much uh knowing that i'm gonna have to do it every single day so thank you everybody the amazing guests for joining please follow them all on twitter Uh, incredible insight. And until next time, see you guys later. Thank you.